how risky are the stable coins that you're using? How much risk is in their custody, in their trading, in the assets that are being held as collateral for them? I think these are really important questions that we should be asking of the assets that we use in DeFi and also in you know, other spaces of crypto land. You know, risk disclosures when it comes to other assets like securities are, are really well thought out and uh, enforced as well too. You know, if you're a, a stock or a bond or it, really anything that's being issued, uh, there's going to be a lot of compliance and disclosure that comes along that demonstrates all the risk uh, associated with that asset. Like if you look at any sort of security filing or if you're investing into different companies, you get this fat stack of papers that goes through every single disclosure that there could be about everything that could go wrong. Even if it doesn't really seem like it, it could go wrong, uh, you're forced to disclose what these risks are and, and show what could actually happen to these assets. And I think this is what people missed a lot in the last cycle, especially looking at something like uh, Luna and UST, where people were buying UST to put into Anchor for a 20% yield, but they didn't really understand the mechanics of how that stable coin was being issued, uh, what the mechanisms were to keep the peg, and also the collateral backing or lack thereof, which would protect the peg in the event of a downfall. And, you know, we got to a point because people didn't understand the risks. I think a lot of people overextended themselves in UST by placing their, their funds into this anchor protocol where they're making 20%. And... No, they got wrecked. <laughs> really, really wrecked. If if at the end of the day they had been provided better disclosures by all the different companies that were integrating UST, right? There's like banks, these like neo banks that were offering high yield state savings accounts where they would just take all your savings and put it into UST and then give you sixty percent of the yield. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, swapping one asset, swapping a high collateral or high quality asset like dollars into something like Luna or sorry, UST, it's just, it's mind boggling. So a lot of these risks never got disclosed. I think that one thing that we're doing here at Flywheel Pod is really trying to disclose all the risks associated with fracks. I think that's, I think that's one of our jobs that we have to do a really good job at. Because if you ask an institutional investor, you know, it, they're deploying millions of dollars into FRAX. I mean, they have to know that the $1 that they buy of FRAX is going to be worth the dollar when they take it out. And they're, they're you know, all the risks that are associated with that about how FRAX could break the peg or uh, any sort of smart contract risk or multi-sig risk, all of this needs to be documented and put out into the community. And I think we have a responsibility here at Flywheelpod to do that so that we can be like the disclosures that any other 
uh, company would issue for its products. Now, there's no compliance or enforcement for this yet, and so it'll be a decentralized community effort, but I still, still think that we can do a pretty decent job, if not just as good or better. Uh, so this is something that we're going to be working on. But what I wanted to talk about today is there are agencies within the United States and Europe and Singapore and other places, which are really starting to take a deeper look into how all these stable coins work. And using their wealth of experience and knowledge of, of history, uh, they are starting, starting to put together uh, papers which detail stability risks and regulation. So one of these government entities is known as the uh, Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, I'm going to call them. Uh, they released its or sorry, they released their uh, report on digital asset financial stability risks and regulation uh, a month ago today on October 3rd, 2022. So the report itself is just a laundry list of all the different ways in which crypto markets might influence or cause financial instability in the real world. <laughs> and also on chain as well, too. So I read the whole report and I think I can say at this point that this U.S. government agency really deeply understands stablecoins at this point and also their risks. So the report is all-encompassing, all and it provides a really clear view into how regulators are going to approach stablecoins. Because by defining all the risks that are associated with them, they can think about how they would either justify forthcoming laws, rules, regulations, uh, or an enforcement of those laws, rules, and regulations as well, too. So, you know, the Congress in the new year is going to be drafting a stablecoin regulation. There's also the DCCPA, uh, which is moving through Congress as well, too. And so once those things are passed, I mean, it, it'll clearly lay out for different uh, enforcement agencies regulatory enforcement agencies, how they should use those laws and and, uh, and how they're going to affect companies and exchanges and DeFi itself. So I think by understanding that, we can get a better picture of what's to come. So if you haven't really figured it out yet, the United States and other advanced economies in our uh sphere, global sphere, but especially the United States, they use a disclosure-based disclosure financial system that greatly cares about what could happen if markets went south. Because it's never really about the good times, it's mostly about understanding the risks associated when the shit hits the fan. And based on that, they then enforce and litigate. So. When you look at things like too big to fail or uh, people making these uh, analogies of TradFi to to crypto, saying, "Well, look at J.P. Morgan. You know, they facilitated a lot of money laundering, or you know, they do these th this sort of fraud or bad action or something." One of the reasons that they're able to insulate themselves from any sort of uh, 
you know, legal action against them is that they heavily define and publish all the risks that are associated with their business practices beforehand. And they pay, they pay their legal teams a lot so that they can minimize the risk that in the case of something, whatever bad thing it is, they've properly told investors beforehand that it could happen. So if there is, you know, like a great financial crisis, well, it's okay. I mean, it's all there in the risk assessments that you sign. So you sign these documents that said that, you know, these risks are associated with them. So, you know, we're not liable for that. And it, this is all good. It's just the name of the game. So given this, it's important to understand a few key points about how we can use those same disclosures in the crypto space uh, to better approach stable coins. So I don't, I don't want to get into the whole FSOC report. It's really long. It's like 125 pages. It, it doesn't just focus on stable coins. The stable coin part of it is just like one paragraph. It's like one page, it's a couple of paragraphs. It's not long, but it highlights the key thoughts and arguments that the government's going to use against stablecoin issuers. And also when Congress passes laws, this is what they're going to go after. So I, I would say that much of the language is directed at, at USD coin and Tether and other custody stablecoin assets. So these are the largest by issuance in the entire world. You know, at the current moment, the decentralized stablecoins maker has, I think, 6 billion in supply and Frax has like 1.2, 1.3. Um, so on the other hand, USD coin and Tether have a lot more. It's like over $100 billion probably like 60 or $70 billion each. So when reading this, it's important that we start there and then we work our way back to DeFi. So let's hop into the report, see what's there, kind of dissect it paragraph by paragraph, because there's not a lot of paragraphs, but we can go into them and then talk about them afterwards. So let's let's go in and see what's what's written here. So here's here's how it starts. Some stablecoin issuers reportedly hold assets in the traditional finance system. These assets create a point of interconnection between the traditional financial system and developments in stablecoin markets. Traditional asset markets could experience dislocations if stablecoin activities were to obtain significant scale and if runs on stablecoins were lead to fire sales of traditional assets backing the stablecoin exposures uh, could create particularly large vulnerabilities if stablecoin issuers were to conduct a fire sale of assets held by other financial institutions that may be subject to runs such as money market mutual funds okay so let's let's break this down a little bit okay so on the whole the what's first being said is that stablecoins are the link between the TradFi system and the crypto system. It has exposure to both, uh, which increases the risks. Um, you know, typically the way that USD coin and Tether issue their funds is that they take collateral into whatever institution they have. Uh, 
a, a network of banks or a bank, and then they issue one-to-one backed stable coins uh, based on the financial assets that are held by the custodian. The custodian then takes the financial assets that are being held and they help, to, uh, or sorry, the stablecoin company then takes the, the dollars, right? So if you're taking dollars in, you then issue that dollar like USD coin, and then you take your, your dollars that are just being custodied somewhere, and then you invest them into different financial products. These are typically like notes, short-term notes, uh, commercial paper, a little bit, um, Yankee bonds, but a bun- bunch of different things. Really, it's like short-term debt that uh, provides yield and makes the stablecoin issuer money. Um, now, the thing is, is like the when approaching these, the regulators are always going to think about what happens when there's a bank run. So what what happens when there's a Luna collapse, right? When people are just trying to cash out billions of dollars of UST at the same time, because the risk is never in the day-to-day operations. It's the risk is always when there's the most stress, the most selling pressure being put on these stable coins. And so let's just assume, okay, so I, I get, I'm a stable coin issuer, right? Um, I'm going to call myself uh, square right now. There's already a square. I'm going to be diamond. Okay. Uh, so I'm, or oval, right? Okay. I'm oval, oval bank, right? Instead of circle, I'm oval. Uh, I issue OUSD, oval USD. Now to do that, I take in dollars into my bank account. Uh, I then issue the stable coin one-to-one. And then I take the dollars that I have and I invest them into notes. Like I said, um, the, the sad part about all of this is that there's not really enough paper, like good debt. There's not really enough good short-term debt to go around. So at scale, when I get bigger, like sure in the, you know, when I start, uh, there's going to be enough short-term debt, but eventually I'm going to run out of short-term debt that I can invest into without uh, affecting yields substantially. And at that point, I either have to expand out the curve. So I have to go longer duration, you know, instead of going like seven days, I'd I now have to go 30, 60, 90, maybe six months. <clears throat> and uh, that introduces duration risk into the products that I have. So let's say I've got all this collateral and we experience bank run. Okay. We, we have billions of dollars of redemptions coming in. And that means that I have to take the collateral that I'm holding, uh, which is all this short-term debt, and I have to sell that debt into the market to get back dollars and uh, pay out dollars to people who are trying to get out, right? That's what happens during the run. So this this dislocation that occurs when me, the stablecoin issuer Oval, is trying to sell down my my debt at a really fast pace, that's when it screws everything else up, right? So the FSOC is saying, um, if if I was to get to significant scale, and I had a bank run, um, and I've got to be, and and I've got all this kind of like longer duration debt, like like ninety days, six months, it may not be as liquid as the uh, two week treasuries or you know seven day treasuries. Uh, treasury notes, where there's a really deep market for that debt. 
really deep market. But the further you go, further you go out to maintain yields and profitability of the company, now there's problems where you run into illiquidity. So the way that it works is you'll unfortunately sell your most liquid assets first. So you're going to sell off that really high quality collateral. And then as you get lower and lower in, in your uh, in your collateral amount, uh, you start having to like sell off this really short-term, really short-term or sorry, longer-term duration debt. And that's where things get messy because now at the longer duration, it's pretty liquid or it's, it's less liquid than at the, at the shortest term. And, um, I may be holding debt. That's, that's not government debt. I may have, uh, corporate debt, institutional debt. Like I may be taking debt from, I don't know, a bank or some other hedge fund or somebody else. Right. And I, if I've got to sell that, if I have to fire sell that, that debt, those debt instruments for like a, a bank or hedge fund or something, I, I don't really know. It doesn't matter. If I have to sell that down, um, me selling into the market could cause a lot of stress for those, um, for those institutions. Because it, for one, it's not going to look good. It's also going to affect their borrowing rates. And if I'm a significant size, like F Suck says, uh, it can really screw things up. I mean, not not me. I may be able to sell off everything and just be fine, but my fire sales of these more liquid assets or assets that are connected with other institutions or, or corporate entities may have significant effect. So um, that's not something that I actually thought about before doing this. So you know, this is this one thing. The first thing they talk about has been uh, helpful for me to kind of understand the the broader risk that happened here. Uh, so yeah. Okay. So we talked about like, okay. So coming back to it, just to make things whole, right. When we talk about like tether it's specifically about tether up until recently when tether now mostly just has notes, right. Uh, they probably have duration risk of like 45 days. Uh, before that they had like a huge amount of commercial paper, like 60% of their collateral base was unknown collateral or commercial paper. And the reason that this is worried a lot of people is because they looked at it and they said, Oh shit. <laughs> like we don't know what this commercial paper is. Uh, Tether is one of the largest commercial paper owners in the entire world, but we don't can't find them. We can't track their, their assets. They're being held as collateral. We don't know the duration risk. We don't know the liquidity, the liquidity of those assets. And it, it constitutes 60% of their uh, collateral book. I think it's really freaked a lot of people out. It did. Um, and you saw significant outflows of Tether after that point as investors rebalanced into USDC coin or USD coin. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it doesn't even matter if Tether's paper that they were holding, their commercial paper were holding was was good, right? When there's a fire sale when there's a, a bank run, when the market goes south, if they're starting to sell this debt into the market, it it really affects yields, uh, the price of that debt as well too, and how much somebody's going to buy it from you. Um, and you know, even if the company is strong and has cash reserve to pay back the, the either stable coins or creditors that they have, 
the volatility and madness of the markets comes at the absolute worst moment and could force you just to, to sell, sell your, your best assets into the market to, to reduce your, your risk and to pay out people. Um, so like this thing with, with Tether, right? People in the government community talk about like how Tether lost like $10 billion worth of market, market cap in the three AC collapse. But, you know, Peg deviated a little bit. I think it was like three cents. Just like a lot for a, a, a you know stablecoin with like 70 80 billion dollars worth of value um so when we talk about like the these outside assets it is it is really important that the stablecoin have these like super liquid assets okay two things either the assets have to be so liquid that the entire supply could be liquidated just no problem, right? So you're forced to hold these like short-term, you know, maybe 30-day treasury notes where, you know, the the yield isn't great. On the other hand, the second option, which Frax uses, is you limit withdrawals, especially during times of stress. So bank runs occur because people get freaked out and they want to pull their money out. And so they run to the bank or they run to the institution and they say, oh, hey, I want my cash back. Even though the company may be or institution may be totally, totally fine, uh, these strains put a lot of pressure because typically these companies will have cash sitting around, maybe like, I don't know, five or maybe two or I, who knows? I mean, every company is different, right? So they'll have this, excuse me, they'll have this, this, uh, liquid cash sitting in a bank somewhere, but the rest of it's in short-term debt. So when people come running, they'll pay out their cash first. And then when that runs out, then they have to go sell other stuff and they'll try to sell whatever's profitable or not going to affect the books first. And then they just start working through working towards the more liquid stuff, which is going to have a bigger price impact and, and affect the, the finances of the company even, even more. And so, yeah, so when you, when you get to this, uh, you can do what Frax says, which is lock liquidity. And if liquidity is locked, when people run to the exit, they're, they're locked in, they can't go. And so Frax has done a really good job of making sure that the majority of Frax is locked for like up to a year in these different farms, maybe three years. Um, and in times of instability, when people would normally pull their liquidity out, now they're locked. Now they have to ride through it. Uh, and so that's a good thing. That's, that's really good. So Frax has come up with this like ingenious system, how to keep people inside their stablecoin and prevent these bank runs, fire sales, whatever you want to call them. And this is great. This is really cool. So we could never have that depegging event that Terra Luna USD had, um, mainly for this one reason. Not, not only for the AMOs, but additionally because across all the different pairs that are that have a gauge, right? You know, the minimum time that they can be locked for is like seven days. So, like, unless you're locking like the majority of that pool, like at that moment, it's, you're never going to be able to to get enough 
uh, you're always going to have liquid markets to trade into. And that's, and that's really, really, really important. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this has happened in other places. If you've listened to the, the previous episodes that I've, that I've done, you know, we talked a lot about money market funds and this is the issue that money market funds had in 2008 and 2020. So these like capital drawdowns and withdrawals in money market funds at the time uh, forced the money market funds to do exactly what I said. They sold their short-term debt. They sold the stuff, which was the most liquid. Then they started getting to the more liquid stuff. And it just, it just craters the price of the asset that you have of these bonds that you have. And you know, when that happens, you're there's just the floor drops out. It just it goes. And especially as you get more towards the illiquid stuff. And so this is why in 2008 and 2020, uh, money market funds required government intervention when, when just their collateral market liquidity dried up. They just didn't have liquidity. So when markets crashed, investors ran to these money market funds, tried to get all their money back at, at one time. And that just put too much stress on these money market funds. And you just like loop this over and over and over more instability brings more withdrawals. And it's just a, it's just a really bad cycle. It's like a doom loop for money market funds. And eventually you go to zero and then you got to get bailed out or you declare bankruptcy and people lose money. Um, so yeah. I think this is probably the most important thing to think about when when looking at stable coins. It's like, what is the risk to the collateral that you're, you know, holding? Uh, sometimes people don't care, like in the case of Tether, but um, the markets are becoming more mature now. So who knows what's going to happen? But stable coins are safer, right? I mean, their build is safe, uh, but we could just got to make sure that the there's the right rules, either programmatic or in socially that prevents them from, from failing like UST did. All right, let's go on to the next sentence. So vulnerabilities could also arise if a run on stable coins were in some way to put pressure on traditional financial institutional holdings, right? On a traditional financial institution holding the stable coin issuers assets. Uh, so th I think this is language around like the general custodial aspect of the collateral. Uh, if somebody wants to help me out with this, I, I, I don't think I can say much here. Uh, I would guess there might be some risks around clearing and settlement for the bank that's, that's custodying the assets that are used as collateral for the stablecoin. Uh, there might be liabilities to multiple parties uh, for those collateral assets. I don't know. Um, so uh, the thing that comes to mind is the Archegos incident where the, the guy got himself into really bad, highly leveraged trades by just, um, going to every single different financial institution and like promising the same collateral over and over and just getting more and more leverage. So when the fund blew up, uh, everyone came looking for the same collateral, and there just wasn't enough to go around. And uh, they found out they were screwed, right? <laughs> so yeah, if if, there, if you have anything, if, if one of you dear listeners wants to come on and educate me on this, I'd, I'd really enjoy it. Okay, let's go to the next one. So many stablecoin issuers are opaque 
about the exact nature of their asset holdings, if any. Ha, shout out Tether. That, that opacity could be due to non-compliance with applicable rules and regulations. Also Tether. Uh, opacity is, uh, opacity is also partly related to the lack of standards for disclosing stablecoin asset composition, auditing or review requirements or guidelines around acceptable asset management strategies. For example, investigations that determine that some stablecoin asset attestations were false. Actually, everything written here is about Tether. I, <laughs> this is just like the playbook that Tether used in like 17 and 18 when they were, there were serious criminal fraud taking place. I mean, they lost like $800 million worth of, of collateral at the time to these like shady people. Really the crazy story. I, I need to do a whole thing on, um, that, that, that $800 million that, that got, uh, frozen in like a German bank account. This is crazy story about like the ex football player who was setting up these like shell companies to help tether moves money around when it was smaller crazy stuff it's just crazy story i, I need it i'm gonna I, I i have to cover this we'll, we'll come back to it but everything about the statement was tether right tether has never produced an audit they've employed a lot of them but they've never produced an audit nobody has seen the details of their books i've heard a lot of people on podcasts saying their books are great you know we transact a lot of money with them but uh you don't really know and so that uncertainty sucks and it would be great if they could just disclose all of their their assets uh usd coin on the other hand does attestations um you don't really see odds too much but attestations are good enough they put the the csip numbers uh you can pretty much just track all the usdc collateral in existence and they put this out i think weekly <laughs> all right so let's go to the next one so in general, some stablecoin issuers state that their asset holdings purportedly include some combination of short-term risk-free assets in the TradFi system, such as cash, treasury instruments, and somewhat less liquid holdings, such as commercial paper, other TradFi system assets, and assets not in the TradFi system, such as other crypto assets, or loans to crypto asset firms, or market participants. I, this feels like a shout-out to Voyager 3AC Celsius, where um, you know they're not issuing a stablecoin, but they definitely were not clear about where they were lending out money and how much they were lending it out against, and what sort of collateral is backing it. I think in Voyager they they just gave them six hundred and fifty million dollars of un non collateralized loans, crazy stuff. But think about it for like a stablecoin issuer, right? Where you know, they issue all these stable coins and they've got all this collateral, but then it goes off to, you have no idea. I mean, what is Tether's book? Are, are they like, they say that they're just buying short-term treasuries now, but is it really the case? I don't, I don't know. I I don't see the numbers. Um, so yeah, like th this is super important. This is what we need to have presented, like easily findable on their website. So it can be discussed. Um, let's go to the next one. So while opacity limits analysis of the market impacts of these holdings, research using available data has found some evidence of limited interconnections with the TradFi system to date through this channel. Increased issuance of major stable coins may have resulted in an increase in commercial paper issuance on a daily frequency and lower commercial paper and treasury yields. So 
what they're saying here is that we don't really know what's happened because everything's opaque. You don't know what kind of transactions are being done. And so all these stablecoin issuers, like they they were buying a lot of uh, commercial paper, um, or maybe they still are, which uh, again, like I want to keep coming back and, and, and making the point that there's not enough debt. There's not enough good debt in the world. There's a lot of shitty debt, but good high quality debt, it's competitive. Um, and when you're buying it, especially in size, like when your size is size and you're buying billions of dollars debt, uh, your purchases are going to affect the, the yields. So the more, the more, or you're buying these bonds, right? The more bonds you buy, uh, the higher the price goes of the bonds, the lower the yields go. Um, so by entering into this market where there's a new bid for commercial paper or just short-term securities, you know, by, by buying all this stuff, um, it's actually counterproductive for you as a business because now your yields go down. Okay, let's go to the next one. So in this way, the growth of stable coins may have created additional demand for short-term assets and affected short-term money markets. Uh, yeah, so you know, we, we, they have to find debt somewhere and they got to go buy it from money markets, which have their own asset expo or risk exposures, uh, which they probably didn't tell you about. Or they're going to buy um, other short-term assets like treasuries, seven-day treasuries, two-week treasuries, thirty-day treasuries. Um, and yeah, and who knows? I mean, if you don't know the makeup of their collateral base and they don't tell you, it's really bad. Okay, next one. Uh, stable coins could also affect other existing financial institutions. Sure, yeah, that's the whole point, <laughs> uh, but in a good way where we don't need them anymore. Uh, stable coins may introduce new uses for money uh, money market funds talked about it before on money moves where uh, a tokenized money market fund is very similar to these stablecoin projects um, and I mean yes and no I mean but there there's not really a distinction people may just be you know wrapping a money market fund and then selling it as a stablecoin when really that's a security it's a it's it's an equity position it's not a on a debt position. Okay, so for example, a recent filing with the SEC involves the creation of a government money market fund to manage stablecoin issuers' asset holdings. It's a risk. Now the government is starting to provide services for these stablecoins. They're allowing them to access the discount window or they, they want to, the stablecoin issuers want to access this window. And um, it just increases the risk all across the board, you know, whether good or bad, whether it actually like leads to anything, um, hard to say, but um, the risk is there. And the more that uh, these issuers enter the market, the, the greater those risks will be. All right, let's get to the last one. In addition, as noted in the report on stable coins by the president's working group, OCC and FDIC, the aggregate growth of stablecoins could also have important implications for the financial system and the macroeconomy by affecting the flow of funding to depository institutions and overall credit creation. Okay, so essentially they're just carping for the banks here, they're saying like, oh, you know, people might actually like using stablecoins and they could use them in DeFi where uh, the it's all P2P, you have all your money all the time. Uh, if you want to try to go earn some yield, you can do it. 
you know, there's lots of other stuff in this like DeFi ecosystem that we're building, but you know, maybe it's too good. Maybe these stable coins just, they allow you to do whatever you want. Um, and maybe you just don't go to the bank for a loan anymore. Maybe you get a loan from Ave or Frax or somewhere. Um, you need financing? Okay, now there's like debt markets on on crypto where you don't actually have to go to a bank. So the bank's business is hurt by that because they just can't offer a stablecoin like that. And eventually these stablecoins could have undue influence over the economy if everyone uses them and they're completely widespread throughout the, the ecosystem. Or sorry, our, our economy. Um, so yeah, so... I th I think this has been a really important chat. Um, I want to work on some risk risk disclosures for Frax, just so that we can have like a better understanding of what Frax does and the risks associated with it. And then we can talk them through. We can actually go paragraph by paragraph in what I think are the risks for Frax. So we'll do that in the next Money Moves. Uh, and I want to thank you for tuning in. It's been really nice uh, to speak about this. If you have any questions, hit me up. I'm a traders underscore insight. Um, if you want to get on Twitter and tell me I'm wrong and show me some other stuff, I would like that actually. Uh, please help me learn more. Um, I'm Sam. This has been a great episode of Money Moves and I will see you next time.